You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. This morning on The Long View, we consider our radicalized republic. Our political analyst, Neil Milner, isn't about to sugarcoat life in our United States these days. Good morning, Neil. Hi. How are you doing, Catherine? Good. But, you know, I have to say, you know, after watching that siege unfold at the Capitol on January 6th, my heart really needed to hear about Kumbaya. Well, unfortunately, you're not going to hear it from me because it's a misleading way uh, to understand what's going on right now. And I think a deceptive way, a self-deceptive way to do so. The, the, the good research, and this is reported in this article called The Radicalized Republic, which is in 538.com, really summarizes what people who have paid attention for a long time and have not just dealt with their hopes and dreams but with, with real facts have shown. And that is that whatever you think of the confidence of Joe Biden, this problem is much greater than Joe Biden and that it's not going to go away very soon, that the country is made up of people who hate one another. Uh, it's made up of, of people with very different views of democracy. And it's made up with polarization and resentment that is so great that there really isn't a good way right now to understand what you can do about it. So that's essentially what the point is that I wanted to get across, that this is not about something that's been, you know, that's temporary and that a president can heal on the basis of fixing. This is arguably at least 40 years old that it's developing, in some cases much longer than that but at least 40 years old, and it deals with a set of processes and a set of characteristics that aren't going to go away. And we can talk about what the specific problems are. If you, know, if you want to do that right now, we can do that. Well, you know, I, I'm just uh, you know, thinking of just basic civility, you know, when you have these differences. Uh, sure. Basic and it's out the window. actually off the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's <laughs> off the table for a couple of reasons. Not that it's a bad idea, but it's, an, it's a process by which we simply can't get to on the basis of anything short term. There are little things you can do. The reason is because... Uh, first of all, people talk about the other side. People on one side, that is Democrats, uh, hate Republicans and think they're evil, and Republicans think the same thing of Democrats. You find language that has become uh, uh, dehumanizing language that's become characteristic. And it doesn't take, this is not about nutcases or fringe people. Ask your friends what they think about Republicans, let's say. The word hate will come up. And so you have that kind of thing. You have the total dominance of politics, especially partisanship, that um, it's now much more difficult to interact with someone of a different party, to even live with someone near someone with a different party. And all of these kinds of disagreements are really quite basic. And they, in, on, on almost every issue there now is social issues, political issues. There are strong partisan differences that, that's, that stick around. And one of the big ones is on racial resentment, that what you have now is something that's in some ways similar to what you had for many years, uh, but has changed in a dramatic sort of way. Uh, and that is something called white resentment. Look, white resentment is part of our history. Um, but white resentment itself hasn't increased since the 1980s. What it's done, though, is become a much more partisan and encompassing issue. That is, it's sorted itself out so that Republicans... Uh, are much more likely to have a, a kind of sense of white resentment and a worry about minorities and immigrants getting too much than Democrats do. It's, 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 it's become another one of those uh, polarizing issues. And it's become to a point, and I've discovered this in my own writing, if you talk about white resentment, Republicans are much more likely to say it doesn't exist in the story. You're just causing trouble. So you're at a point at which things that are very much on people's minds, like Black Lives Matters, for example, take on a very different kind of, of, of thing and, they're, and related to partisanship. And again, it isn't that we dis, just disagree. We dehumanize the opposition. And when you dehumanize opponents, you're, much, you're, you're encouraging a kind of violence. And that may explain what Lillian Mason's research, which people weren't paying much attention to but are paying more attention to now, about the willingness of people to use violence in this, you know, in, in our country, 
he found, this is before, uh, you know, before the insurrection, about 21% of people are saying they could see using political violence in this country. The percentage of Democrats and Republicans are, are, uh, who say this are about the same. Republicans have been more, uh, slightly more willing to say it, and there certainly has been much more white, actual violence by white-ring extremism. So I guess what I'm saying is, what's there to be optimistic about? You can have hopes, you can have what you want, but you have to face the fact that that's the position that the country is in, and you can see how it's playing out within the Republican Party, even, if you want to get a good idea. Yes, I mean, all we have to do is just look in our backyard. You know, the head sure. of the Republican Party stepped down. Uh, there were issues. There, there's been division for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's like, what's going to happen to this party going forward? Well, I, I, that's an interesting question. I mean, first of all, the, the party is essentially Trump's party as of this moment. All the impetus, all the grassroots passion, um, and that includes in this state, it is, is for people who are very loyal to Trump, who think that the Democrats stole the election. And remember, three-quarters of the Republicans, uh, you know, Republican voters think that that's the case. So you have that. You have a recent survey that looked at Trump has talked about starting up uh, a party called the Patriots Party. If you look at the initial surveys on this, about as many Republicans are willing to vote that way as they are voting Republican. Now, that's very... Uh, early on. But what you really have right now is an enormous amount of grassroots passion, grassroots you know, state and local Republican groups that are still very loyal to Trump, certainly believe in what he says, are not necessarily uh, QAnon ones, although it's more likely that a Republican person is, is sympathetic to QAnon than a Democrat. And that's a, so that you're not anywhere, so that there is nothing here that would suggest that there would be a movement toward a reasonable center. And all of the media's attention to the anti-Trump Republicans in Congress and so on is essentially overblown because those people don't have much leverage. Uh, and, and that's so that the, the fact that there are moderates, the fact that they're working toward a bipartisan solution on the on the COVID uh, relief bill, which is going to be a tough one for the fact that they're working toward it, maybe even get it, doesn't get around this fundamental kind of uh, difference in society right now. Well, you know, uh, you talked earlier about the uh, violence and the, uh, you know, between the Democrats and the Republicans and how they're verbalizing it. They may have thought it before, but now they're, you know, yeah, sure. it's, it's out there in the open. But it is pretty horrifying when you see Republicans uh, saying, okay, yeah, you know, let's go after the vice president, you know, oh, threatening yeah. the, the Republicans. And yet you see a lot of Republicans then stepping back from the party. So that's a little creepy. Yeah, I don't see many Republicans stepping back from the party right now because essentially there isn't any kind of reason. I think the ones, you know, we have to be careful. All Republicans didn't go after um, the, the vice president and all Republicans don't have those ideas that uh, – Congressman Green does about there wasn't any Parkland shooting and so on. But the, clearly the, the impetus right now is still strongly toward difference rather than toward moderation. We've sorted ourselves out over at least a 40-year period. Uh, we've sorted ourselves by party. It's reinforced by the hate that we have for the, other, or for the respective other sides. Um, and uh, you're that's not going to go away in, re mm -hmm. in response to how the Republicans are. It's a little odd to think of, the, of Hawaii's Republicans that way. Right. But, in fact, uh, you know, whatever, whatever else is clear, they are a Trump party right now. Right. Okay. Well, uh, so much for Kumbaya, and yeah, uh, thanks for the sure. cold water. <laughs> yeah. But it's a great rainy day, and that's what I have to tell you. <laughs> okay. Thanks okay. so Take much. Yeah. Thanks so much, Neil. Sure. Bye. We've been talking with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View.
This morning, HBR's Kuvehi Rishi joins us to talk about a land use issue, a land use conflict that's brewing on the Big Island. What was to be a solution to one problem is maybe turning out to be something else. Good morning, Kuvehi. Good morning, Catherine. Uh, community opposition uh, on the Big Island, so in Kohala, uh, has been growing in recent days over plans to develop a parking lot. So this is near the Polalu Valley Lookout and, and Valley Trail, which a lot of, of folks have been taking advantage of, especially during COVID. So this particular proposal would help improve access to the area's uh, popular hiking trail. But it could also open the door to residential development on that valley ridge line. So uh, how this is going is a private corporation that owns land in Pololu Valley on the valley floor as well as up up top, a company known as Surety Kohala Corporation. They agreed to donate five acres to the State Department of Land and Natural Resources uh, to develop this, this parking lot and comfort station near the lookout. Um, but access issues, as we all know, for many of Hawaii's most sought-after hiking trails and scenic views are, are nothing new. In Kohala, uh, the increase in traffic to this popular valley lookout uh, has been growing in, uh, over the years. David Smith, the administrator for DLNR's Division of Forest and Wildlife, uh, has seen that change and says the proposed donation could help solve the problem. You know, I used to take my kids down there and the six parking spots at the end of the road, and they were never full. Now, the line of cars will go a quarter mile down the way, parked on both sides of the road. Um, there's no restrooms, and it's a real problem. So um, we've been working with uh, reps from the Big Island to try to fix this thing in the community. And uh, this is the fix. We've, we'd put in a parking lot and a restroom. Surety agreed to help us out with that, with that donation. So this is kind of the, the way to do all that. that. That was Smith pitching the proposal to the Board of Land and Natural Resources last month. Uh, so that proposal includes the land donation, but there is an incentive there uh, for the state. They would be able uh, to consolidate their land holdings in the Valley Four. As of right now, according to tax records, Shirdi, uh Kohala Corporation owns about 86 acres, mostly along uh, the Pololu Valley uh, wetlands area, the stream, and along the coastline. So the state would be able to take that in as part of uh, this deal. But in exchange, uh, BLNR, the Board of Land and Natural Resources, is actually adding its name to an application along with surety uh, to the county of Hawaii to uh, allow for a 13-lot subdivision uh, on that Pololu Ridge. So community members uh, say they've heard talk of a possible land donation as far back as uh, 2018 uh, when there was a community meeting held there to kind of get the, the community's uh, feedback on a potential deal. But nothing had gone through at the time in terms of a, an official proposal. Uh, but now with the subdivision as part of that discussion, uh, that's uh, been worrying to Aloha Patel, who's an English teacher at Kohala High School. So I don't think uh, the community is involved, um, but you know these sort of things happen where they put out meetings just to say that they had meetings. So um, I don't think like there's a lot of uproar. By Sunday, there were like this really big two signs: one that says "Protect Pololu," and one sign that said "Aole, no houses on the rim." So was the idea that uh, what this was kind of sneaky? That is part of it, that, that lack of trust, uh, of course. Um, but, you know, uh, Patel actually had his students look into the issue. And uh, it was interesting. They posted a YouTube video with sort of their insights. And one student had mentioned the idea of, you know, if you build one parking lot and uh, traffic increases because of the capacity, what's to stop folks from building a bigger parking lot? And so... They're more concerned with being part of the conversation at this point, um, <clears throat> and there will be uh, other opportunities for community uh, involvement and feedback throughout this process. The subdivision itself has to be approved by the Hawaii County Planning Department, um, which uh, is further down the line, and in that process, uh, we know community feedback is a part of that. Uh, but 
Uh, the uh, Save, I think, Protect Pololu Valley is a group that just popped up uh, with a an online petition circulating to try to stop the development and for a lot of folks just wanting to be involved in that conversation. Uh, Bill Chantel, Executive Vice President of Surety Kohala Corporation, says, you know, this is, this is the, the time is ripe to take a look at how this can be a win-win to help solve this problem once and for all. And we're at the point where, you know, Surety, we're, we're very open to the idea of making the, the, the necessary land donations to solve the problems out there. And it's, it's very satisfying uh, to see that this is coming together at this time. Um, just to give another little bit of perspective on this, I've got a set of plans on my desk dated from 1970. Um, they're approved, signed by the mayor, um, um, looking to solve the problems out in Polu via land donations and whatnot. And for 50 years, nothing happened. So the Board of Land and Natural Resources did uh, approve that uh, proposal, uh, but that, as we mentioned earlier, that land donation won't happen until uh, the Hawaii County Planning Department actually approves the subdivision request. So kind of a, you know, a, I'm not sure how things are going to turn out, but a lot of uh, checkboxes to check off before anything actually happens. Is it clear to you, though, why the community wasn't uh, kind of advised of this? Because usually that's, you know, one way to, to avoid conflict, to just be transparent about what's on the table. Right. So at the meeting, uh, both uh, Smith and uh, other staffers at the Department of Land and Natural Resources uh, mentioned that meeting back in 2018 uh, where community members were sort of um, – the temperature was taken among community members as to whether or not they wanted uh, that consolidation of land in the valley, and they were supportive of that. They saw the donation as a plus. Uh, but now that there's the subdivision uh, component to it, a potential subdivision, I should say, um, because that's up to the county, uh, the community wants to be it wants to have further discussion on that particular matter. Um, but uh, it will be interesting to see how. Uh, the discussion, you know, turns out if uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources perhaps reaches out uh, to the community uh, again or surety to uh, bring them into the loop on things. Yeah, because, you know, I think the community needs to kind of process what is this exactly, what are the impacts. Right. Uh, but it sounds like then there is going to be, uh, you know, ample opportunity going forward to kind of air out their concerns uh, about, you know, what potentially could crop up there in that valley. Exactly, and we're hearing that uh, more so this week, and we'll see uh, how it goes moving forward. Yeah, so the communities were going to step up uh, uh, and be more visible with their uh, uh, concerns about uh, what's happening? That's what it sounds like. Uh, the signs are up, petitions are circulating. I'm sure it'll get uh, the attention of, of uh, government leaders in, in the near future. All right, well, thank you so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. That was HPR's Ku'uvehi Harishi talking about a uh, Polulu Valley land dispute. You can find her story online at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community to enjoy the art and museum spaces on Pauhana Friday evenings until 9 p.m. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Finally, there's some light at the end of the pandemic tunnel. I remember looking at the vial. It's tiny. It's like the size of, you know, my thumbnail. It's unbelievable that it comes down to something like that. From vaccines to mutual aid to defunding the police, we're looking ahead into 2021 on the next Reveal. Beginning this evening at 7, following Mike Mark's Cafe.
A land dispute of another type is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri on the line today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Happy blustery Wednesday. Yes, I hope you're staying dry. Uh, so the story that you've got is about the Kaka'ako brothers, and there was a big uh, court decision yesterday. That's right. This is this ongoing saga over, uh, I, I want to say it's about two and a half miles of roadway that cuts through the heart of Kaka'ako. Uh, it's been going on for years, and it involves a dispute over um, the purported private owners of these stretches of road, which in- include roads like uh, Queen and Cummins and Waimanu. Um, this is uh, and and whether the uh, the state and uh, by extension the the county, uh, the public entities, whether whether they actually own these roads instead. Uh, this really got. Uh, it grew kind of more heated and, and the, the legal va- uh, battle really intensified in 2010, or I should say after 2010, uh, when Kakako Land Company, that's the uh, the private entity, and it's basically two brothers, uh, Cedric and Calvert Chun, uh, they started to um, charge for parking and uh, towing. And what's interesting is they started doing that at the behest of uh, a state agency. But nonetheless, they started doing that in 2010. And when they did that, the city said, well, OK, now you guys are, are starting to you know, basically profit off of uh, these streets. And so we are no longer going to do our, our upkeep, you know, the, the regular uh, road maintenance. And so they've really fallen into disrepair. Uh, and that's become more noticeable as time has gone on as this legal battle over who really owns and who really controls the streets has intensified. And basically, yesterday, uh, a Hawaii circuit court judge ruled that, in fact, the state has the claim to ownership over these roads and uh, not the private entity. Yeah, and the state had to hire outside attorneys. I think it was Judy Pavey's firm that uh, actually uh, went to bat for the state, saying these brothers don't rightfully own this property. The, uh, I guess the original owners intended to give it to the state, although I think there was some issue with recording that. Right. There was confusion because way back in 1903, uh, the original owner of these roads, uh, a guy named Charles Desky, it looks like he he intended to, by all rights, to uh, to transfer ownership of these roads to this to then the territorial government of Hawaii. And uh, there was a there was a resolution, but nobody ever found a deed. And so that's what a lot of this came down to. Um, many decades later, in 1985, the Chun brothers, uh, they told me once on a, on a whim, really, uh, tracked down Desky's heir, who's still living on island. And uh, his, his granddaughter basically agreed to transfer title for $5,000 on a, on a quitclaim deed. And so this case is largely centered on whether that deed was even valid. And uh, Judge Crabtree officially ruled yesterday that, in fact, it was not valid. Yeah, and and this is uh, you know a real issue uh, of contention for the businesses in that area. I imagine they were out dancing in the streets, dodging the potholes, uh, uh, those those large yeah. craters, because uh, the Kakaka Land Company hasn't really been doing the upkeep um, like the city had hoped they would. Right, and again, that's why this has been kind of an interesting story, and and you know has garnered a lot of attention is because of the condition of the roads, um, the uh, the businesses that you know are are doing business along there, um, and yeah, I I did hear some uh, there's some some celebration yesterday, although this isn't over, uh, could very well be appealed, uh, but yeah, the the issue is that. Uh, there's been uh, they've been charging uh, monthly fees. I think it's upwards of one hundred and fifty dollars a month on more than a hundred stalls, although nobody's sure exactly how much Kakako Land Company is making in the parking. And that, you know, there are there are tow trucks that are just kind of patrolling that area and that it's just, a, you know, it's really been irksome for, for the business that's trying to operate there. Yeah, so uh, it, it would be interesting to see how this gets resolved. But, yeah, you and I have sat through many a hearing on this between the Homeless City Council and uh, the Hawaii Community Development uh, Authority. Uh, everybody's been pulling their hair. So uh, major win at this stage, and we'll see what happens. To be continued. Yeah, all right. Thanks so much, Marcel. That Thanks, was Catherine. That was reporter Marcel Henre with today's Reality Check. To read his story on this issue, visit civilbeat.org.
to do about the state of our cesspools here on Oahu. Kahalu and Waimanalo are on the high priority list to fix the problem in order to protect our nearshore waters. On Maui, it's surface drinking water that's threatened, and on the Big Island, more than half of cesspools in the state are located there. The deadline to convert these cesspools looms overhead. That could mean the creation of green jobs and opportunities for homeowners to get some help. Well, a series of town hall meetings are set to launch starting tomorrow, this Thursday, in Kahalu. We talked to Stuart Coleman, Executive Director of Wastewater Alternatives and Innovations, and Roger Babcock, a professor at the University of Hawaii, who has taken a position, we should add, with the city as its new facilities director and who is with the coalition Work for Water. Stuart Coleman starts us off. So VI stands for Wastewater Alternatives and Innovation. And VI is not only our name, but it's the Hawaiian word for water, and it's kind of the core of our mission, you know, protecting our water quality throughout the state. And that includes groundwater, drinking water, and surface waters. And we do have this problem where we, I think, have the most cesspools than any other place in the country, right? Long Island has got its beat in terms of the number of cesspools, but per capita, we are... Nokawai, number one. And uh, so that's that's a dubious distinction that we want to bring down. Who all is involved in this effort to try and convert these cesspools uh, to something that's going to protect our uh, nearshore waters and our drinking water? Yeah, so along with the cesspool conversion working group that both, you know, Dr. Roger Babcock and I work on, there is our nonprofit, and we teamed up with kind of some of the top water quality and wastewater experts in the state to form this coalition called Work for Water. And this was something that we did to kind of pivot after COVID pandemic hit. And we realized, okay, not only do we have this mandate under Act 125 to convert all these cesspools, but we also need to, you know, get this process started and do workforce development. So this Work for Water, the four stands for the four counties for doing 400 cesspool replacements across the state and the four key goals of workforce development and infrastructure investment and, you know, cesspool replacement all in the name of water quality protection. And Roger, talk about this law that people need to know about because we can't be on cesspools forever. That's correct, Catherine. The, um, the law mandates that all cesspools be replaced by the year 2050. And I think Stuart alluded to the fact that we have approximately 90,000 cesspools in Hawaii. So it's a very large task. And But at the same time, there's seems like there's a lot of time available. However, when you start thinking about it, it's um, there's really a lot to do. So you can't really wait. Ideally, you wouldn't wait too long to start because there really isn't capacity to do all these conversions if we had to do them all in five or ten years or so. Approximately 100 to 150 are replaced per year currently statewide. And if we started today in an all-out effort to replace an equal amount each year in the next 30 years, it would require about 3,000 per year to be replaced. So that's a big increase in, in workforce and capabilities that's needed to ramp up. And the idea of Work for Water is to to kickstart that process, to start doing some today and putting the training and the other elements that are needed to make that happen, to get those in place today so that we can start now without, you know, without further delay. And Stuart, talk about these meetings. When's the first one launch? In order to kind of educate people about the mandate to replace all these cesspools and to talk about, you know, new technology options, which we hope are going to be more efficient, more affordable, and better for the environment, we have begun to set up uh, a series of town hall meetings across the starting in the priority areas that the Department of Health has determined where there's a risk or potential risk of contamination, you know, because cesspools are basically just putting raw sewage in the ground. There's there's no treatment, and it leaches out, and it can go into the groundwater, and so if there are wells nearby, it can potentially affect the drinking water, but then we also know it affects surface waters and recreational waters, like where we swim, surf, fish, and everything, and it can affect coral reefs. So we're starting in Kahalu. On Thursday, we're going to have a town hall meeting um, starting at 6.30, and uh, we're working with uh, Representative Kitagawa and Senator Riviere to hold this meeting, and then we'll be doing the next one in Waimanalo on on March 4th. And so this is kind of just to provide some opportunities, even uh, funding opportunities for these homeowners. And Roger, talk about the 
problem? How bad is it in Kahalu and Waimanalo? Well, the, the areas that are identified as priority one are areas where there's uh, already known impacts to either groundwater or surface water or nearshore waters. And in this, in this case, it is the nearshore waters. And so there have been studies with measurements, and you can identify the presence of a sewage signature. Uh, in upcountry Maui, which is a very large area, it's groundwater, and the groundwater is a, you know, sort of a protected source that's a potential source for drinking water that some people do use. And so there will be one on Maui, uh, what, do you think maybe the next month or so? Probably it's going to take a little bit longer. We're going to do Waimanalo next, and then probably the Big Island, because more than half the cesspools are on the Big Island. And so we, you know, wanted to, to focus more kind of where the most numbers are. But, yeah, we'll be going to um, upcountry Maui and then eventually all kind of 14 priority areas across the state and then other communities as well. But just to kind of build on what Roger was saying, with the Surfrider Foundation taking water quality samples, you know, over the years, the water quality in Kahalu'u is substantially over the legal threshold and sometimes dangerously over what's allowed. And so these are not only environmental issues, but human health issues. And I know there was a push at one point to get as many ADUs or accessory dwelling units built just to provide housing for our people. But in those areas, a lot of that couldn't happen because of the sewage situation. I think that's correct. There's regulations about how many bedrooms and units and stuff you can have on a single treatment system if there aren't sewers. And so that that could be uh, that could be an impact. Most of the places where there are cesspools now will not be getting, you know, county sewers because of their location uh, and the and the high cost of that. Um, and you know, you just to go back to your issue about the scale, um, based on you know some of the recent installations that happened over the last few years, where there was a tra- when there was still a tax credit available, the Department of Health collected some data on the uh, costs of these replacements and. You know, there's there's a there's a very wide, a large range, but it uh, but if you take an average uh, or a median of about uh, about twenty twenty two thousand dollars, and you multiply that by the number of cesspools, you're, you're talking about a, an overall um, scale of about a couple billion dollars for these replacements. It's a very large problem. Cesspools are problematic along the coast uh, because you know with rising sea levels that could, you know, impact, you know, what gets into the waters. And, and, you know, I like to swim, and I know there are times being out in the North Shore, you're like, wow, something smells really bad out here. So you don't know yes. what you're swimming in. Yes, we had one unfortunate woman who called when I was at the Surfrider Foundation before this. And, you know, sometimes the water, you know, pardon the pun, can be very crappy conditions. But she actually paddled into, like, that poop all over her and that, you know, created an article and quite a stir in the community because that's when, you know, it really hits home for people. Like, this is an issue that affects all of us um, who love the ocean and love our waterways. What island was that? That was on Oahu at Bowles, appropriately named. We think toilet bowls for, you know, uh, a lot of of discharge comes from boats themselves that, you know, don't go out to sea and sometimes release that. But there are also cesspools all up our white watershed. People might be surprised to learn that a lot of those multi-million dollar homes along Black Point, Kahala area, uh, are on cesspools. And, and you think, what? Yeah, it's, uh, I think, shocking to, to most people to realize that it cuts across every demographic. So we have cesspools in every part of Hawaii and very densely along the coast, but it also cuts across real estate demographics, and to kind of build on what Roger said, not only are there problems with adding units that are on a cesspool already, but right now, according to the law, if, if you have a cesspool and need a permit to do an upgrade or to add an ADU or dwelling, you would have to convert the cesspool. So that's another kind of trigger for conversion. And also the point of sale, too, right? Well, we're working on a bill right now for the point of sale. And so because if you buy a home right now and you have a 30-year mortgage, you're running up against the 2050 deadline. 
to convert. And so it's kind of a liability for new homeowners. And so we're saying when there's money on the table and the deal is being done, you know, they should convert it then. And, you know, maybe they can share it between homeowner and buyer or just include it in, as part of the mortgage. So we have two bills that are part of that, HB 112 and SB 369 is the companion bill that would mandate an inspection and conversion if it's a cesspool or a failing septic. If I recall, lawmakers tried to introduce that earlier and it failed. I think the, the realtors, um, there was a, a big outcry. There was a lot of pushback. Last year, actually, it was poised to pass. It had already passed out of the House and gotten halfway through, excuse me, passed through the Senate and gotten halfway through the House, but COVID shut it down. And so, yes, you're right. In previous years, it hadn't, there'd been some opposition, but I think real estate agents and the one I've talked about or talked to are really starting to understand that this is kind of a liability that they must take care of because, you know, of the law and and 30-year mortgages. Um, And it's just safer. It's increases the value of the property. So there are a lot of, I think, good reasons to to make this part of the law. Okay, so buyer beware. There is this uh, deadline out there, and it is expensive. So how do we help homeowners kind of tackle this problem? Well, that's a, that's a good question, and the cost is substantial. And there are various ways that that can be addressed, and there's examples from, you know, some other states where there are low-interest loans, in some cases, there are grants. In some cases, of course, you have to find the money to be able to provide the grants. And so, and and there's also possibly some alternate ownership models that are possible as well. So we've been looking into looking into some of these things, and uh, there's there's a lot of interest. There was a, a study been done looking at you know how to some different options of the way to to finance this. But there's still quite a bit of work that has to be done in that area to ease some of the financial burden that, would, that is that can be. It would be mostly, you know, individual wastewater systems in areas like Roger said, where there's it's it's most likely, especially with the current pandemic economy, that they won't be able to do sewering for for years and years because they just don't have the money. So we're trying to find alternative sources of income, especially from the federal government do workforce development, because this is going to create a lot of green jobs. And these jobs won't go away, because as Roger said, we have to increase our workforce, the the rate of conversion by 20 times. So we could build this workforce 10 to 20 times what it is now. And these jobs pay well, and you can enter at any point from high school to college, you know, to having engineering degrees. And there are many different kind of avenues of entry for these positions. And so that's kind of what we're excited about. And so if we can leverage some of this federal money, then we can help the homeowners with that. Okay. So part of these town hall, town hall meetings are to drum up support to say, get these homeowners saying, yeah, we want to try some of these new systems that are more efficient, more affordable, and, uh, and potentially get you know, subsidies for those. That was Stuart Coleman of VI, a new nonprofit charged with helping Hawaii's homeowners and communities manage the very difficult process of upgrading cesspools across the state. We also heard from Roger Babcock, a a professor at the University of Hawaii's Water Resource Center and now the city's new head of the Facilities Maintenance Department. For links to the upcoming Kahalo meeting Thursday and the town hall meeting in Waimanalo, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. We'll also learn more about some of the new technologies to deal with waste later in the show. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii Hilo professor Patrick Hart introduces us to the Black Hawaiian Naughty. Noyo, or Hawaiian Black Naughties, are one of the few seabirds that live in Hawaii that can be easily seen and heard from shore on the main Hawaiian islands. They're mostly black with a white cap on top of their head and a wingspan of a little more than two feet. The subspecies that lives in Hawaii is unique in that its legs and feet are orange. 
unlike all the other black noddies on tropical islands around the world that have black legs, Noya like to nest and roost in small flocks and cliffy areas along the ocean on all the main Hawaiian islands. They feed on small fish and squid close to shore. Fisher people recognize them as important aku birds, or birds that will lead them to a school of hungry aku fish. Noyo are also important in Hawaiian navigation. When a noyo is seen by crew during a long voyage across the Pacific, they know there must be land ahead. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. And this week's Mono Minute was made with recordings from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. From the mountains to the sea, Hawaii's birds can be heard in their native habitat. Take a moment to listen. Subscribe to Manu Minute, HPR's latest podcast, and it's now available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your RSS feed. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about how to volunteer at Friends of Hakalauforest.org. You may have heard of composting toilets, but what about Cinderella toilets? Well, it's the brainchild of Norway, and it's been in use for decades there. And two toilets have been recently installed here on Oahu. One on Coconut Island at the Institute of Marine Biology, and the second one at Kulima Farms on the North Shore. We were there as Stuart Coleman showed us how the toilets work. They use no water whatsoever because they burn waste. The demonstration took place the week that honored the origins of the toilet, believed to have been invented by Brit Sir John Harrington and refined by Thomas Crapper. You know, it's funny because it was invented by a guy named John, and as we talked about, you know, that's like the, the founder of it. And, but Thomas Crapper is the one that really made it, popularized it, and took it around. And you can imagine the reduction in the amount of diseases because there were still, and it's still in many developing countries, there's open defecation areas, it's unsafe, it's the leading cause of death among young people and adolescents from very preventable diseases. And so it revolutionized it. This, we hope, will do the same. Because right now, even though Thomas Crapper created something, you know, really impressive that was much safer, the idea of using clean drinking water to flush our toilets is kind of ridiculous in this day and age where, you know, less than 0.5% of all the water on Earth is potable, you know, is able to be drank. And with rivers being contaminated, you know, we have to conserve water. And so it's completely waterless and you can be completely off the grid. And so it's just a much um, kind of better model for conservation and just for safety. In the era of COVID and during this global pandemic, sales have really skyrocketed in Europe because medical teams and international governmental teams um, and relief agencies want to use this because they know it's 100% pathogen free after incineration. And we know that COVID can travel through wastewater. Um, and so there's an extra layer just of protection through there. Okay. Yeah. So it, it, it's it's good that it, it you know that with COVID we can appreciate what it does. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. uh, and you know the, a lot of the Gates Foundation technology is about recycling the waste. You know, conserving water and then recycling what we do use. And so you know throughout history they've used human waste as a fertilizer. Um, and so now with pharmaceuticals and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's more dangerous. You can't really do that. But with incineration, it's getting down to just the basic, basic elemental nutrients. And this, on large scale, there's also technology where you can use it on farms um, and recycle it. There's a lot of nitrogen that they'll have to use less fertilizer and phosphorus and, and these things. So it's really cool. We're on a kind of, we're going into a new age for sanitation. You know, that day out in the field, the demo used bananas that were incinerated into ash. It looked like a regular toilet in an outhouse plopped down near farm lots and garden lots across from Turtle Bay Resort. Uh, Vise Yoko Schneider explains uh, how it works. The process begins by opening up the lid. And if the toilet is currently going through the incineration process, the process stops to make it safe for you to sit down. And you grab a bowl liner 
which is made out of very thin paper just to preserve the cleanliness of the inside of the toilet. And you lay it softly in there, it fits perfectly and sits there so that once you sit down to do your business, everything is caught within the bowl liner. So we're putting the bananas in here to simulate somebody going to the bathroom. And then after you're done, you stand up and you simply close the toilet and you press the incineration button and now the noise will come. And that was it. So the, the door to the incineration chamber is closed again and the process continues. It takes about 40 minutes to complete, but like I said, anybody can go during it and it'll just pause and continue after you're done. We also talked to Ryan Ward. He's a contractor who installed the first toilets here on Oahu. My company is Luna Environmental LLC. We started uh, working with uh, Chris at uh, uh, Kulima Farm a uh, couple months ago and talking about uh, bringing this uh, incineration toilet out for his farmers and through some negotiations and cost analysis to see what made sense for him we um, uh, agreed on uh, providing this uh, porta potty which is uh, just a wood frame building with a metal roof it's uh, transportable to where he can pick it up and move it around the farm as needed it's got the incineration toilet which has no water so it's a good fit for him. How is it powered? So the incineration process is uh, propane, just regular barbecue grill propane tank and regulator. Uh, it has one solar panel that provides the power to a, uh, recharge the 12 volt battery that runs uh, the toilet and ignites the gas. It is more efficient the more it's used. It should be used four to six times an hour max. Up to eight is okay and the usage of the gas stays pretty consistent with using it once an hour up to eight times an hour because the incineration process stops and restarts with every use so you don't have to wait for it to complete a whole cycle before it, you can start the next cycle. There are other units that use just straight electricity too, right? That's correct, yes. We also have uh, uh, the standard model that runs off a 220 uh, electricity and it still has a vent pipe as well for the incineration process but no gas. And then what about the maintenance and the life of, uh, of something like this? The manufacturer recommends the first uh, scheduled maintenance after five years and uh, that's not a necessarily maintenance other than an inspection to look at the ignition and the parts um, and just verify everything's good and replace any parts that need to be replaced at that time. And so th these really have been practical uses in remote areas where, you know, maybe it would be really difficult to have flush toilets. Yeah, that's correct. There's no need for a waste system to either contain or uh, process any waste. The only byproduct is ash that is pathogen-free and basically environmentally friendly where you can just dispose of it in the trash. Right now, with it being a new product to Hawaii, Department of Health has asked us to recommend that we deposit the ash in the trash for the first six months. And there is some testing going on, and we're hoping to see different uh, regulations come out allowing for disposal just in your property. Right, because this is kind of a new animal. We probably don't have the rules and regs because they've never seen it before. <laughs> That's correct, yeah. The, there's definitely a learning curve here. We've been working with the Department of Health to help develop new regulations to make this easier to install, easier to permit, and um, uh, less work for the owner. It's really flexible as to where you can put it. It can go in a house, it can go in a motor home, it can go in a tiny home, it can go in a shed, it can go in your garage. I mean, really, the gas model, anywhere you can charge a 12-volt battery with one solar panel and put a propane tank, you can install it. So it's very flexible. When people look at a house design, the only place you can build a bathroom and put a toilet in a house is where it's plumbed. Uh, with this, you could potentially convert a small closet into another bathroom 
with the addition of an electric outlet and a vent pipe. So we're not restricted to where the water lines are run through the wall anymore. When we go to the remote locations where you don't have access to electricity, where you don't have realistic possibility of installing a septic system or you know any way of handling your waste stream, we've got the perfect solution. A lot of times the incineration toilet is compared to a composting toilet, though the upside to the incineration process is it's completely pathogen free, there's, there's no mess, there's no cleanup or no shoveling the compost, no turning the compost, very minimal maintenance compared to a composting toilet. It's a major, major step up. And among those uh, that were eager to try out the Cinderella toilet were children helping to tend to a nearby community garden plot. They were ecstatic to learn that there was some place to go. We hear from siblings Laie and Ehukai Kyle. What do you think of this new Cinderella toilet? It's cool because before we had to hold it until we went home and now you can just use it here. So. <laughs> How often does your family come out to tend to the garden here? Um, every other week or so. What did you think about this? It's very fancy. It's the toilet is clean. It's better than the uh, um, other toilet. My toilet, <laughs> clearly. And like it's gonna make it a lot more fun, you know, while you're out here, right? Because you know you can use the bathroom if you need it. Pretty much, you don't have to hold it anymore. <laughs> the magic will happen. The magic of the new Cinderella toilets installed at Kulima Farms this past weekend. We'll have pictures and links on the conversation page. Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. We're out of time, but up tomorrow, we hope to hear from Governor David Ige about the vaccine rollout and other issues. Uh, call our talkback line if you want to sound out, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook, uh, on the Conversation HPR, or tweet us at HI Conversation. And today we say aloha to our producer, Harrison Pacino, who will be moving on to KPBS San Diego. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.